Well, good morning and welcome again to St. Paul's. We're so glad that you're here. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that you cover this place in your spirit now, that your word proclaimed might reveal to us your son, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My beloved son. If you didn't know anything about Jesus or the Bible and you were making up a story about the son of God, you might be forgiven for coming up with someone like Hercules from Greek mythology. You know, the half-human son of Zeus who was stronger than everybody and went around killing monsters. Or maybe it would look like Superman in a more modern incarnation, the handsome, humble hero who's all-powerful and invincible, who suffers none of the pains of being human. But if you're making up a story about the Son of God, what it for sure wouldn't look like is our reading that we just heard from Matthew. This poor 30-year-old peasant, a nobody from an oppressed minority group in a backwater corner of an empire, showing up at the riverbank religious revival of a wild-eyed wilderness prophet to get dunked. If you're joining us for the first time, we're exactly halfway through a preaching series called The Story of Everything, which is taking us through the entire Bible in 20 weeks. And our preaching accompanies our congregation doing the E100 Challenge, which is 100 essential passages of Scripture that hold this whole story of the Bible together five readings a week. And after 10 weeks in the Old Testament, which described the whole history of God's promises and faithfulness to humankind, this week we turn to the New Testament, which is the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the movement, the church that he left behind. It's the New Testament, literally the, the New Covenant, because it's where we see the fulfillment of all the promises made in the Old Testament. We see how the vast movement of God through history comes to a climax in Jesus. But what makes today's readings about the baptism and subsequent temptation of Jesus so surprising, indeed what I think makes the whole New Testament so surprising, is that there's no way you could predict Jesus from the Old Testament. Like if I throw a baseball and you watch it go through the air, you don't expect it to take a sudden right turn. You know where it's going to go. And if you're watching a train on a track, you know where that train is headed. But all the prophecies and promises of God in the Old Testament, without denying them their own integrity, as Christians we also have to say they only make ultimate sense retrospectively through the lens of Jesus. There's a phenomenon in art called anamorphosis where a picture only looks right when it's viewed from a certain angle. A famous example is the distorted skull in the Hans Holbein painting. A smear of paint toward the bottom of the image viewed head-on, a reminder of mortality if you're standing in the right place. Here's a sculpture of a frog <laughs> that's distorted, so you can only see the image when it's reflected in a convex mirror. I want to suggest the Bible's kind of like that. God's loving faithfulness stretched through time can seem distorted, can be hard to see the picture, but it becomes crystal clear in the clarifying image and lens and person of Jesus. In today's reading, we hear about the baptism and subsequent temptation of Jesus, and these two temp episodes in Jesus' life are often read separately. 
But I think it's important to connect them, and I want to show you why this morning. Because these passages show us what it means to call Jesus the Son of God, and calling Jesus the Son of God is the essence of the Christian faith, that we can either accept or reject, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God of the universe. We start with Jesus' baptism. A bit of context. So Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, has set up this kind of religious revival on the banks of the Jordan River, and he's called the Jewish people out to repent of their sins through this ritual washing of baptism. So Jesus comes along to be baptized, and John's like, no way, because he knows who Jesus really is. He knows Jesus doesn't have any sins that he needs, clean, he needs to be cleaned of. So Jesus says, no, let's do this because it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. It's a bit of a confusing thing to say. It's puzzled interpreters ever since. There's no solid line on what Jesus means. What's it mean? Well, here's what I think it means. I think it means that Jesus, as the Son of God, didn't stand apart from humanity, above humanity. He's no Superman lurking in his fortress of solitude. He was fully human. He is God among us, God with us, and he didn't have sin to wash away, but he joins with us anyway in that satisfying of the law of being cleansed. Of repenting. He says, here I am, I'm with you. And it turns out to be the right move because when he comes out of the water, he sees the heavens opening. And then the Holy Spirit descending like a fiery bird and the voice of the Father, he hears it saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And here is maybe the, the clearest biblical picture of the Trinity, God three in one, God the Father anointing God the Son with God the Holy Spirit. One God, Three persons lashing heaven to earth. Anyway, so here's why I think we need to read the baptism temptation together. If you look at verse 16, Jesus comes out of the water and says, The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit descending. There's nothing that says everyone else saw this. Not John, not the other people around. It seems like it was a private revelation. So you have to wonder what Jesus was thinking when he's drying off on the riverbank like wondering about what has just happened to him. Did he doubt? And you might think, no way, Jesus didn't have any doubts. He's the Son of God. How could he doubt? Doubting's for me, not Jesus. And I'm not saying that Jesus did doubt, but he could have. He really could have. Because when we say that Jesus was the Son of God, it's easy to slip into thinking that Jesus is just God in a skin suit, like God cosplaying as a human being. Now, here's the omniscient, all-powerful creator of the universe playing pretend with mortality. But that's the Hercules fantasy. That's the Superman delusion. Jesus being the Son of God means that the omniscient, all-powerful creator of the universe is fully and perfectly depicted in the human being, Jesus of Nazareth, in all his human limitation and finitude. Jesus gets tired. He gets hungry. He gets angry. He gets sad. And what we see over and over and over again in scriptures is his faith in God. It persists precisely in the midst of all the struggles of human life. That's a human faith. It's a human trust. And there's no faith, there's no trust without at least the possibility of doubt. And that's why Jesus' faith had to be tested through temptation. Was he really going to believe what he'd seen and heard when he came out of the water, that the Father had declared him the beloved Son and anointed him with the Holy Spirit. So we see chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit sent him out alone into the wilderness. This isn't just an idea that Jesus came up with. 
He's led by the Spirit into the desert, where he fasts for 40 days and for 40 nights, all that time, no food. So he's pushed to his physical limits as a human being. You actually can't go much, much, much beyond that. And after 40 days, in the depths of his starvation, the devil comes to him, the devil, the adversary, the spiritual force that's opposed to God, and he tempts him. Three temptations. The first is the temptation of hunger. If you're the son of God, turn these stones into loaves of bread. But Jesus replies, it is written. In other words, Scripture says, one doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The second is the temptation of safety. If you're the son of God, jump off the temple and hear the devil quote Scripture. The devil can do that. The devil quotes Scripture to say, do it. God's going to save you. Just off you get. But Jesus replies, it is written, don't test the Lord your God. And the third temptation is the temptation of control. The devil says, I'll give you every kingdom if you worship me, if you praise me, if you love me, if you submit to me. Pretty good price for all that power, right? But Jesus replies, away with you, Satan, which means adversary. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. What's happening here? I want to suggest we're seeing Jesus resisting temptation in two ways. The first is simply that he doesn't fall for the devil's trick of putting a question mark where God has put a period. God says, this is my beloved son, and the devil tries to turn it into a question like, can you really trust that? And Jesus does trust that. He trusts God's word perfectly. He's staking his life on it. But second and far more significant, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that the devil is trying to tempt Jesus into being the wrong kind of son of God. He's trying to tempt Jesus into being the son of God in the wrong way. The devil's all, okay, Jesus, you heard what you heard. You saw what you saw. You're right. You are the son of God. You are the son of God, so act like it. If you're the son of God, you don't need to be hungry. If you're the son of God, you should be safe. If you're the son of God, you should be in control. The devil tempts Jesus into being the kind of son of God that you or I or the devil would make up. Hercules, Superman, a son of God who's the master of his domain, invincible, in control. And to play devil's advocate, literally, here, doesn't he kind of have a point? Because isn't that what being God or the son of God should be all about? Maybe we just think that, that the Son of God should be like Hercules and Superman, because that's what we all want. If you think about it, the vast majority of our lives can be described by the three temptations of Jesus. We hunger. Our bodies hunger. Most fundamentally, for the food that keeps us alive, there's nothing wrong with hungering for food to keep you alive. But that doesn't mean that hunger can't go wrong. Because our body's hunger isn't just about mere survival. We hunger for more food, for too much food, for better food, for fine food. We hunger for the chemical hit that alcohol or nicotine or your drug of choice delivers. We hunger for pleasure. We hunger for sex. A lot of the times our hungers drive us without us even knowing it. And sometimes, with addiction, our hungers own us. How much of your life is ruled by hunger? 
We crave safety, that second temptation. Who doesn't want this? We've been walking around for two years trying to stay safe. Our RRSPs, our TFSAs, all the insurance you have to have to exist. The fundamental social architecture of the modern welfare state, all of this is an attempt to make us as safe as we can be. And there's nothing wrong with safety. But that doesn't mean that our desire for safety can't go wrong. Because to be alive is to be vulnerable, and to love is to be vulnerable. And it's possible to be so concerned with your own safety that it costs you the living of life. It costs you the love of your neighbor. How much of your life is ruled by your desire to be safe? And finally, we crave, we crave control. Don't we just? From our earliest childhood, wanting to do it ourselves. This is my reality with little ones at home. Pour the cereal, put on your clothes. Into adulthood. To be in charge of your own situation. And there's nothing wrong with being in control on a certain level. Nobody wants to get shoved around. But that doesn't mean that our desire for control can't go wrong because other people are messy. Other people mess stuff up. And so if you want to be in control of your own life, you kind of have to control what other people do. And that's the rub because everybody wanting control over their own lives needs to control everybody else. So is it any wonder that we fight? And all our anger, all our wrath is the furious child of our desire for control. And of course, we're watching in Ukraine the desire for control playing out on a geopolitical scale. On the, on the one side, the Ukrainian people's desire to control their own affairs, which is legitimate and just and good. And on the other side, the Putin regime's desire to control manifesting as this death-dealing domination. Jesus turned down the offer, the devil's offer, for the kingdom of the world and all their splendor, but there are plenty who are happy to take Satan up on it, even today. How much of your life is ruled by your desire for control? How much of all of our lives is ruled by our hungers, our desires for safety and control? I mean, isn't so much of human life, the way we live, the way we work, the way we shop, interact with each other, basically an attempt to satisfy the complex of these three fundamental needs in ways that go right and in ways that go horribly wrong? And if so much of our lives is about satisfying these needs, whether we name them or not, wouldn't it make sense that we'd imagine a son of God who didn't have to worry about any of this stuff? And if these needs represent the fundamental preoccupations of human life, is it at all surprising that hunger, safety, and control are how the devil tries to tempt the human son of God, Jesus. But Jesus chooses differently because he's a different kind of son of God. He's a surprising son of God. Not a Hercules or a Superman who can satisfy every human need. Now, Jesus, son of God, shows us that under all of life's needs, the most basic need of every human being is simply God. We need food to live, but even more fundamentally, we live because God's word has spoken us and the food we eat into being. We need safety, but more fundamentally, it's the will of God that holds us in life and in death. We need control, but more fundamentally, it's God who deserves our worship. We're tempted to imagine that the needs of life are coextensive with life itself, that life consists in satisfying its needs. They're real needs. But we can start to think that satisfying these needs is what life is. And you can spend, you can waste your whole life 
chasing after life's needs and imagine that that's living. But Jesus' response to the devil, he shows us that beneath that tangle of needs that's real but that we mistake for life itself, there's a need more fundamental still, fundamental like the hulk of an iceberg beneath the surface of the sea, and it's the need to love and to be loved. It's the need to know love, and God is love. You are my beloved son, God said to Jesus. Love. Love is what makes Jesus different from Hercules or Superman. Superman's a lot better than Hercules, but we don't have to get into that now. You are my beloved son, God said to Jesus. It's that love, that love that relativizes every human need because all hunger will pass, safety will come and go, control will ebb and flow, but God's love remains. And this might sound kind of hollow, I know, because what I'm describing isn't going to stop it, isn't going to fill an empty belly or stop a bullet, though sometimes people driven by God's love will fill bellies and stop bullets. And listen, I know how these needs press in. Talk to anybody who lives with me. I I feel like a hypocrite saying all this because I get hungry, I get scared, I get anxious at not having control. And I'm not saying the needs of life don't matter either because if you're hungry, I want you to be full. God wants you to be full. And if you're scared, like someone here is living in fear in their home life. That's just a guarantee by the numbers. Somebody here is scared at home. And if you're scared at home, God doesn't want you to be scared. I don't want you to be scared. And if you're oppressed, if you are out of control in that sense, God doesn't want that for you. But we live in the world we live in. And what I want you to know above all else is the sufficiency of God's love for you in Jesus Christ. It is enough. It is enough, even when you are hungry and scared and out of control. And listen, neither you nor I are the natural-born son of God. Jesus is the only one who's ever been or ever will be. But here's the promise of Christianity, as St. Paul, our church's namesake, puts it in his letter to the church in Rome He says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. You have received a spirit of adoption. If you're a Christian, this is true for you. And if you're seeking, if you have doubts like Jesus might have had doubts, this promise can be for you. The same Spirit that descended upon Jesus that anoints Him as the beloved Son of God, that same Spirit can rest on you, lead you, declare you to be a beloved child of God. It can comfort you in your hunger. Your fear for your safety, your grasping at control. And so, but you have to pause, you have to stop, because the needs get right up in your face. And you sort of have to push them back a little bit. And at some point today or this week, try to do that. When you feel the temptation of one of those needs like wrapping around your face like a chain, just stop and remember life is more than its needs. Life is more than your hunger, it's more than your safety, it's more than your control or your lack of it. Life is, life is about God. And you can call on that spirit and like a dove descending, that spirit will settle gently on the closed fist of your heart and rustle in until your fingers unclench and unfurl and spread and welcome and God makes his home in you and gives you peace.
Amen.